Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. Cold cases are definitely fascinating, but I want resolution. I love reading about cold cases that get resolved because I want to know who did it. And I want to know now. I want the creep, pervert, freak, murderer, rapist, etc. to be identified, arrested, tried, and convicted. Prior to DNA analysis, too many of these cases would remain cold. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr., the man dubbed the Golden State Strangler, was an absolutely incredible story. Thanks in large part to DNA analysis, this monster was finally caught. So many other cold cases have been solved by using the same type of DNA analysis, but D'Angelo may be one of the most publicized. In this episode, we are heading to Fairbanks, Alaska. The date is April 25th, 1993. This cold case is the murder and rape of a young woman named Sophie Sergi. Sophie Sergi was 20 years old at the time of her murder and a former student at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. She was also Yupik and from the village of Pickus Point, which is located along the Yukon River in western Alaska. The Yupik are a group of indigenous or aboriginal peoples of western southwestern and south-central Alaska, and the Russian Far East. Pitkiss Point is a few hundred miles away from Fairbanks, but a short flight by plane. Prior to going to college, Sophie had wanted to join the Navy just like her brother. Unfortunately, Sophie wasn't tall enough to meet the physical requirements. She was very petite at just five foot and 111 pounds. But she was determined, positive, and not easily discouraged so she decided to pursue a degree in marine biology. Sophie was on a break from school when she went to Fairbanks for a quick weekend visit. She was taking a year off from school so she could get a job that would help her pay for health insurance and her orthodontia. She had an overbite that she wanted to get fixed and had gotten braces for herself. Sophie was at the school visiting her close friend, Shirley Akelcock, who was living on campus in the dorm at the time. She also had an orthodontia appointment on Monday morning, and this was actually the primary reason for her being there. Shirley's boyfriend, Noah, was also living in the dorm, but on a different floor. The plan was for Sophie to sleep in her friend Shirley's room, and Shirley would spend the night with Noah. That way, Sophie would have a place to sleep and stay during her short weekend visit. According to a Calcock, Sophie also had a number of friends on the third floor of Bartlett Hall, which was an all-male floor and located one floor above a Kelcox room. She had a good core group of friends and was very close to her mother. Sophie would check in with her mom every day. Sophie is described by others as being intelligent, extremely hardworking, and shy. Her friend Shirley describes her as being super happy and the type of person who's always excited about things. Sophie didn't drink, do drugs, or party, but she did smoke cigarettes. 
According to her friend Shirley Kelcock, Sophie really felt the weight on her shoulders as far as her family went and everything that she needed to do. This tells me that Sophie felt a strong sense of duty and responsibility to herself and her family, and she took it seriously. Sophie had arrived in Fairbanks on Saturday, April 24, 1993. Not long after she arrived at the school, Sophie met up with her friend Akelcock and got herself settled in. Then she and Akelcock went to the school's rural student services center that night and had dinner together in the commons, which is on the ground floor of Bartlett Hall. After dinner, Sophie left to run a few errands in town. At some point during the evening on Saturday night, Sophie stopped in to see another friend, Joanne Sundown. Sundown actually took a picture of Sophie browsing through some catalogs while she was lying on her bed. Sundown confirmed that Sophie was not drinking or doing drugs or partying. Sophie was in town to visit and catch up with her friends and go to an orthodontia appointment on Monday. She was not there to party. On Sunday, Sundown gave Sophie a ride to a hairdresser and later they went to see the movie Indian Summer. A few other friends from school joined them. The movie is about a group of friends getting together as adults and reminiscing about a summer camp they all went to as kids. A feel-good movie. Next, they drove out to a place called Murphy Dome. It's a former U.S. Air Force station. It's only about 30-minute drive from Fairbanks, and from this area, you can see the northern lights in the winter. Her friend Sundown took another picture of Sophie twirling in circles, looking up at the sky with her arms outstretched. Little did anyone know it would be the last picture ever taken of Sophie alive. It was almost midnight on Sunday when her friends dropped her back off at Bartlett Hall. Sophie went straight up to a Kelcock's room and found a Kelcock there with her boyfriend, Noah. She greeted them and the three of them hung out, eating pizza, drinking soda and chatting. When it was time to hit the sack, Sophie wanted to have a cigarette before bed, but it was so cold outside that a Kelcock suggested to Sophie that she use the bathtub area of the bathroom on the second floor, the same floor as a Kelcock's room. She said it had a big exhaust fan and would be better than going outside and freezing her butt off. Then a Kelcock and Noah said goodnight and left. They headed up to Noah's room on the third floor so Sophie could crash. As Akelcock and Noah were walking up the steps in the stairwell to the third floor, heading to Noah's room, they passed a few other students on the way. Akelcock remembers seeing two guys and a girl. When Monday morning came around, Akelcock went back to her dorm room on the second floor. As soon as she walked into the room, she noticed that things just didn't seem right. Everything looked exactly the way it did when she left the night before. It was obvious that her bed hadn't been slept in, The TV was still on, and it was still set to the same station from the night before. Sophie was nowhere to be found. Later that day, at about 1 p.m. on Monday afternoon, a janitor found Sophie's body in the restroom down the hall from a Kelcock's room, the same bathroom where Sophie went to go smoke a cigarette before hitting the sack the night before. He found her body lying in the bathtub off the shower stalls, When they say smoking kills, I I know this isn't what they mean, but the timing is pretty crazy. Investigators believe she was murdered in that bathtub in the wee hours of Monday morning around 1.30 a.m., just 12 hours prior to being found dead. She was found curled up into a fetal position 
and wearing a pair of sweatpants with a navy logo, which she had borrowed from her brother. Her shirt and bra were pulled up with one breast exposed. A medical examiner concluded that Sophie had been sexually assaulted and stabbed twice in the right eye while she was still alive. She was also stabbed in the cheek, cut across her stomach, and likely puncture wounds on each hip. She had been choked, struck with a blunt instrument, gagged with a ligature, and shocked with a stun gun. In addition to all these horrendous injuries, Sophie was shot at close range in the back of her head with a 22 caliber handgun, which was never found. It is believed that Sergi's forehead was pushed against the side of the bathtub or tile wall of the stall when she was shot in the back of the head. The bullet went through her skull to the front and exited her skull at the forehead, but did not break the skin. The slug from the gunshot was lodged just below the skin above her left eye. According to the autopsy results, the medical examiner stated that Sophie's cause of death was the bullet fired into the back of her head. The examination also revealed that there were no drugs or alcohol in her system. Fluid samples that were taken from Sophie's body where the DNA that was found would sit in a national genetic database for 19 years. According to investigators, it was very chaotic at the school, even without the murder. Students were in the middle of taking finals and then leaving the campus because it was the end of spring semester. The university police called the Alaska State Troopers for help because this was way over their heads. Trooper Timothy Hunyor arrived on campus about an hour after Sophie's body was found. His first item of business was to try and identify the victim. Then he began the task of going door to door in an attempt to identify any potential witnesses. He was asking if anyone saw anything or heard anything. According to campus housing records, Bartlett Hall had 350 residents that semester. Unfortunately, as soon as students completed their exams, they left the school. They were out of there. In some cases, they just left for the semester, in other cases for good. Trooper Hunyor was an experienced major crimes investigator, but with the continuing exodus from campus, it was extremely difficult to contact people. Lance Dahlke, another trooper working with Hanyor on the investigation, had the same complaints. Dahlke actually canvassed all three dormitories on the campus, Bartlett, Moore, and Scarland Halls. There were 750 total number of residents at the time. Dahlke was really surprised that they were having so much trouble finding anyone that could provide any information given how many students were there. Dalkey thought that the college kids would have been pulling all-nighters, cramming for exams or partying, and there was a good possibility that someone heard or saw something. But with students leaving in droves after finals, it became increasingly difficult to identify any witnesses. As part of his investigation, Dalkey tried to recreate a scenario that would mimic the sound of a 22 caliber gun being fired in the women's bathroom. Based on his experience with 22s, he thought that dropping a stack of books onto the floor with a loud bang would be a good facsimile. So that's what he did. He had people standing in the bathroom and out in the hallway, and believe it or not, no one heard a thing. Eventually, Dalkey said that the leads to Sophie's murder had dried up. 
There were no viable suspects, no witnesses, no leads, and no arrests. This quickly became a cold case. Troopers did state that even though the case was cold, it was never closed. But for 19 years, there was no progress made in the investigation. At the time of her autopsy in 1993, semen was collected from the vagina of Sophie Sergi. It was kept on file until 2000. In 2000, Alaska State Police had a DNA profile built and submitted it to the National DNA Database of Offenders. There was no match. Then, in 2018, Alaska State Police submitted the DNA profile to a DNA testing facility that performs genealogy analysis. It was through this process that Stephen Downs' name finally surfaced. Prior to the DNA testing, Downs was questioned at the time of the murder, but never suspected of the crime. Everything changed when his aunt submitted DNA to a genealogy website like 23andMe. Alaska State Troopers were then able to trace the genealogy to Stephen Downs. As it turns out, the analysis showed that Downs's aunt was a partial match to the DNA from the crime scene. Analysts were also able to determine that the DNA profile belonged to a male who was related to his aunt's mother's family, which turned out to be her sister's son, or Stephen Downs. Eventually, police were able to get a full match on DNA taken directly from him. Based on that DNA evidence, Downs was arrested in February of 2019 and extradited from Auburn, Maine in August of that year back to Alaska to stand trial. At the time that Sophie Sergi was murdered in 1993, Stephen Downs was an 18-year-old first-year student at University of Alaska Fairbanks with no known connection to Sophie, who is 20 years old and from Pitkiss Point. Downs lived on the third floor of Bartlett Hall, one floor above the bathroom where Sophie was found dead. Years later, when Sophie's friend, Akel Cock, was shown a photo of Downs from around the time he had been a student, she identified him as one of the guys in the stairwell, saying the two had made eye contact. When investigators caught up with Downs after identifying him through his DNA, he was 44 years old, living in Auburn, Maine, and working as a registered nurse. During police questioning, Downs claimed that he recalled hearing about a murder on campus, but had never met Sophie. He said he remembered seeing pictures of her and thought the whole thing was terrible. He stated that he never knew anything or saw anything, and if he had, he would have spoken up right away. Instead, he suggested that soldiers from the nearby army base may be involved, since they would come and hang out at the dorm visiting friends. Sun Journal reports, quote, At his trial, Downs' defense attorney, James Waniak of Lewiston, told the jury that Downs had been a young, handsome, vibrant, good-looking young man who had beautiful girlfriends while he was a student at the school. An English major, he did well in school, made the dean's list. He played music in a band and probably did his fair share of partying, Waniak said. He was happy, well-adjusted, popular, and friendly, unquote. His girlfriend at the time of the murder, Catherine Lee, testified that Downs was a happy guy and even a happier drunk. I'm guessing she means that he didn't get drunk and go on a murderous rampage. So, 
Downs may not have had a criminal record, but he did have a conviction for a DUI, which means he's no stranger to alcohol, and a DUI is only considered to be a misdemeanor. After Downs graduated from the University of Alaska Fairbanks, he moved on to Arizona where he earned a master's degree in business administration. He then spent several years working in the pharmaceutical industry. Downs then decided to make a career change and became a licensed registered nurse in 2011. Apparently, Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky, Mr. Vibrant, with his beautiful girlfriends wasn't all that after all, because in 2016, he was fired from his job at Livermore Falls Residential Facility. Downs actually received an official warning from the state nursing board, in part because two female coworkers complained that he had made them feel uncomfortable. This had to be pretty serious for the nursing board to write him up and fire him. Downs had a dorm room on the third floor of Bartlett Hall during his freshman year, but on the night of Sophie's murder, he was staying on the fourth floor of the dormitory with his girlfriend, Catherine Lee, who was having a party that night. When investigators interviewed Downs in February 2019, he told them that he'd been with his girlfriend, Catherine Lee, on the night of April 25, 1993. He stated that he was in her room all night on the fourth floor of Bartlett Hall drinking and watching movies along with other friends. Assistant Attorney General Darnall said Downs' girlfriend, Catherine Lee, told police Downs was not with her the entire time that night. Lee testified that Downs had been in and out of her room that night. She said that another student came into her room and woke her up when he tried to kiss her. Lee said there is no way that this would have happened if Downs had been with her. Lee testified later at trial that Downs took her out shooting one day around the same time as the murder, and the gun they fired used small caliber ammunition. Downs' roommate at the time told investigators Downs owned a 22 caliber gun that he kept in his dorm room. Defense attorney Hwaniak disputes the claim that Downs owned a gun while at school. He believed that Downs' roommate was only making the claim all these years later in order to cast suspicion on Downs and deflect suspicion from himself. Hwaniak claimed that no one else had told investigators Downs had a gun while at school other than his former roommate. Regardless of any other evidence, I think the following analysis explained by the Chief Assistant Attorney General, Jenna Grunstein, makes the case. In Grunstein's remarks to the jury, she states, quote, a milky white substance had pooled in her vagina, not in her underwear, not on her side, just in her vagina, because dead women don't stand up. And if you don't stand up, the semen inside of them doesn't move. It stays frozen where it lays, just like Sophie stayed frozen in the bathtub. That semen didn't get inside of her accidentally. It didn't get inside of her without explanation. It got into her vagina because that man raped her right before he killed her." Unquote. Grunstein said this while pointing at Downs. With regard to the semen not moving, I'm sure there are listeners out there who understand the gravity of this situation. And yes, I said it. In closing arguments, Downs' defense attorneys claim the case is purely circumstantial and the DNA found at the scene doesn't prove he did the crime. 
Downs' defense attorneys also suggested it was possible for Sophie to have had consensual sexual intercourse with Downs before she was killed. But in interviews with the police, Downs was adamant that he had never met Sophie. He didn't know her. So consensual sex makes no sense at all in this case. Grunstein did a great job of driving this point home. The evidence that was collected from the crime scene sat dormant in a national genetic database until Downs was identified through genetic genealogy 20 years later. Prosecutors say that Downs' DNA was the only DNA collected at the scene. Although Downs' defense attorney, James Hawaniak, argued that there were other hairs and fingerprints at the scene. Other evidence samples were taken at the crime scene, but none were able to produce a conclusive DNA profile. There's no additional detail around this other potential evidence, but it was a bathroom shared by a lot of people, so other hairs and fingerprints would not be unusual. A young man named Alto, a friend of Downs from the university, testified at his trial. He claimed that Downs had a pump action shotgun and a 22 caliber pistol that they went grouse hunting with, maybe half a dozen times, but he couldn't remember which year. Prosecutors say that the revolver seized from Downs' Auburn main home matched the weapon used the night Sophie was killed. Forensic consultants who testified during the trial said that the bullet that struck Sophie was heavily damaged and unsuitable for a firearm comparison. Law enforcement officers also seized a 22 caliber rifle from Downs' home in Maine, but Hawaniak argued that the gun was not the same weapon used to shoot Sophie and called on a man he said sold Downs the weapon long after Sophie's death. Another friend, a young woman named Roseberry who liked photography, also testified at his trial. She stated that while at college, she was actually interested in Downs romantically, but he just wanted to be friends. And she remembered that she had taken a picture of Downs holding a knife that she had seen sometimes on his desk in his dorm room. Roseberry said that, quote, It was a fairly large fixed blade hunting knife, and the only reason I remember it was because of the photo I took, unquote. Even though I would personally like to know more about the firearm analysis and the other hairs and fingerprints, I do believe the DNA evidence is pretty solid. The DNA match, plus the fact that the semen in her vagina was not subjected to the effects of gravity, seems pretty conclusive to me. As you would expect, defense attorney Hawaniak told the jury that, quote, there's actually no evidence, no significant evidence. There's none. There's no gun that's connected to this crime. There's no knife. There are no witnesses. There's no motive. He pointed to a botched investigation and a prosecution that was making square pegs fit into round holes because they have a theory about what happened and they're throwing as much mud as possible and hoping that it sticks." Unquote. In closing arguments, prosecutors argued that in addition to the DNA proving sexual assault, Downs was in the dorm room that night. His alibi doesn't hold up and he owned guns like the one that killed Sophie. The defense has raised the possibility of alternate suspects by pointing to the DNA evidence on Sophie's chest that is not linked to Downs. They also argued that investigators never found a murder weapon or any of Downs' fingerprints at the crime scene. 
This doesn't mean that he can't be guilty. This doesn't mean much, in my opinion. Downs didn't testify in his own defense, but the jury heard him defend himself in an audio recording of a February 2019 interrogation by Alaska State Police detectives in Auburn, saying the charges were impossible, that he did not know Sophie, and saying that there has to be a mistake. Maybe the only mistake was Downs thinking he could get away with murder. Jurors deliberated for roughly two and a half days before reaching their verdict after a three-week trial. In the Fairbanks Superior Court, they found Stephen Downs, now 47, guilty on the charges of murder and sexual assault in the April 1993 death of 20-year-old Sophie Sergi at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Judge Thomas Temple rejected Downs' appeal for a new trial or a judgment of acquittal, citing a lack of evidence. A sentencing hearing is set for September 26, 2022. Thanks again for tuning in to Crime Happens. All episodes are researched, written, reported, and audio mixed by me. Crime Happens is available on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and others. Please follow or subscribe wherever you listen. If you like what you hear, a five-star review would be helpful. You don't even have to say anything. Check out my website at crimehappens.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram at crime underscore happens. I'll be back very soon with a new episode. Until then, I wish you well.